Welcome to the podcast for pet carers. If you're a pet parent or work in the pet care industry, then this is the podcast for you. Our show is about all things pet care, discussing everything from cats and kittens, dog training, pet nutrition, boarding, grooming, daycare, and much more. Join us fortnightly as our host and dog trainer extraordinaire, Glenn Cook, chats with leading pet industry professionals. Welcome back to the podcast for pet carers. I'm the host of the show, Glenn Cook, and joining me today is my close personal friend, Greg Tredenick, all the way from Newcastle, I believe you're from, Greg? That's correct. What his job is, is he's a council ranger. I got invited by Greg some time ago to come and talk at the annual conference of council rangers for New South Wales. So I met Greg there. Greg and I have been chatting by correspondence for quite some time, but I actually met him there and we struck up a bit of a friendship and we've been chatting about council matters. And Greg came over to Pet Resorts Australia today to come and talk to our staff about how to use better management with some animal capturing devices, just in worst case scenario, just so our staff could safely learn how to do that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand over to Greg now, and Greg's going to tell us a little bit about your career, how you started, and then we're going to start firing some spicy questions at you about how to not get yourself in trouble with with council and uh, any other things that we could think of along the way. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Honour to be here. It's an honour to have you here, mate. So how did you get started in all this, mate? Take us back and sort of build your origin story about when you started in this line of work and fill in the detail. Like, tell us a little bit about your learnings, your education and, and where you were then and what you've learned all that time and where you are now. Sure. I probably started a little bit differently than a lot of other people that are in the industry mm. in that, and it's only from my mum and dad told me that I was terrified of dogs as a kid. Really? Yeah. Do you know where I, that came from? I actually don't remember being scared of dogs. Wow. So we got a, a dog, a border collie cross. Yep. And I've seen photos of the dog with me. Yep. And I was young enough to be on a, a like a, a baby mat on the grass outside as they used to do back in the day. Yep. We actually lost that dog. It was bitten by a snake about right. 10 metres away from where I was sitting. So that dog was a bit of a hero for a while, mm. the, the thought that. The, the dog had saved me. After that, I used to ride my bike to school mm. and being on the fifth floor as I am now, it was a fair while ago, and the legislation around dogs was a lot different then. There are a lot of dogs running around. What does the fifth floor mean? I'm 50. Okay. <laughs> so we're both on the fifth floor. That's it. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be riding my push bike home and the local dogs, and I got to know them fairly well, the dogs would come out. Mm-hmm. I'm moving, so they're going to chase me. Yeah. Because that was what it was like when we were kids, right? Like Absolutely. there were, it's not like it was today. There wasn't so much stringent laws around restraining and maintaining pets back then. Dogs used to roam the street. That's right. It wasn't unusual to see multitudes of dogs sitting out in the front lawn walking around on the street even, and it wasn't an uncommon sight. Not at all. And gates weren't closed. Gates weren't closed. If they were even had gates. Yep, that's right. I actually don't remember seeing the dog catcher, for want of a better word, or the ranger or animal control or anything like that as Mm. a kid, outside of what you see in movies. It's something I'd really like to change because they're always the bad guys. Yeah, that's true, because they come and steal people's pets away. Yeah. That's what the belief was. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Anyway, one particular dog that I had to walk past every day was Timmy, the German Shepherd. Mm-hmm. And this German Shepherd was my nemesis. He, he never bit me. How could a dog called Timmy 
be your nemesis. <laughs> he was probably a 45 kilo entire male German Shepherd. Yeah, it he makes was. Sense. He was a piece of work. Well, he, uh, my nemesis was a German Shepherd called Carla, who bit me when I was a kid, but I had it coming. Long story <laughs> short. Yeah. Well, luckily Timmy never bit me, yep. but he used to like to chase me. Right. He took a rabbit of mine out of the backyard. Killed it? I, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I saw him do. But I started admiring the breed. Yep. And admiring dogs in general. The next thing you know, I had a dog from my brother who was hiding it from the council mm-hmm. after the dog had bitten somebody. This dog, I'd known him for, for quite a while, but mm. my brother was a bird breeder. Yep. And he treated his dogs in a similar fashion in mm-hmm. that the dogs live outside he looked after them, he fed them, he watered them, but not so hot on training and, and things like that. Mm. So this dog, he was a, I think he was a Ridgeback Cross Labrador type of dog. He was at my brother's property where, that he was building. People came and tried to pinch some flooring. This dog, Ben, got hold of one of them and did a, a fair bit of damage. Yep. Council came around and the next thing you know, I'd got myself a dog. Right. So this was obviously another property. Did we discover what type of dog this dog was? I think a Ridgeback Ridgeback. Cross Labrador. Right. You may have said that. He was a big boy. I actually right. don't even have any photos of him now. Oh. It's it's a shame. I was probably 12 or 13, so mm-hmm. once again, it was a while ago. Back in the 80s. Oh, yes. Yep. The great 80s. The great 80s. This dog's name was Ben, mm-hmm. and Ben was incredibly dog aggressive. Yep. We didn't have any fencing at our property. I grew up in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. So Ben was on a chain all the time. Right. Being a 12 or 13-year-old, I was also a smoker at the time. Mm-hmm. I walked Ben twice a day just so I could continue smoking. So I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd be up at 6 o'clock every morning, take Ben for a walk, come yep. home, go to school, come home, take Ben for a walk. Hang on, wait. How old were you when you were doing this? 12 or 13. And you were smoking. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're a villain. I, <laughs> I've, I've since learned the error of my ways. Yep. None of that rubbish anymore. Mm. But I wanted to manage Ben a little bit better. I used to have to wear a ski glove on my hand because – if we came across another dog, and Ben was very dog aggressive, we came across another dog, he would redirect back onto me. Mm-hmm. I usually had hold of the lead, so he would bite my hands. Not he'd break the skin and stuff like that, Not nothing really serious. I used to have to replace his lead fairly, fairly often. I learned quick smart not to use chain leads. Mm-hmm. I used to use the, the fabric leads, but... But I, I started getting interested in doing some training. Being 12 or 13, there was certainly no internet. There were no books that I could find. That mm-hmm. I, I don't even recall if I even looked for books in the library. Yep. But I remember I used to get a bread bag full of meaty bites, take them down the park with me, have a smoke, and then I'd just do some, <laughs> some training with Ben. Yep. At that stage I used a choker chain or check chain. I didn't know which way to put it on, so poor old Ben probably copped it the wrong way quite mm. a few times. But I got him to the stage where I could do a downstay from the, the length of a football field. Mm-hmm. He was beautiful healing and, and things like that, and I really, really enjoyed it. Moved forward a couple of years and Ben actually, he had to go at a greyhound and I was walking him over morning and – he didn't realise it, but the lead broke. Right. And so Ben's taken a few steps forward and I thought, well, I cannot have him go for these greyhounds. So I grabbed his tail. Ben did the same thing that he normally did is turned around and redirected, mm-hmm. but because he didn't have the, the hindrance of the lead, he turned around and bit me on the forearm. Right. So I grabbed him by the collar, dragged him home. And as I got into the backyard, there was a cat in the backyard. He was mm-hmm. pretty fond of cats, wanted to chase it lunged out at the cat, I pulled him back, turned around, and he's redirected again. However, this time my mum saw. Mm-hmm. So I locked Ben up, went to school, cleaned myself up. I had a few scratches and maybe a few minor puncture wounds, but nothing serious. 
I got home that night and my brother said, so have you seen your dog? I said, no, the bastard, I probably should go down and say hello to him. I was pretty cranky with him this morning. And my mum came out of the bedroom and said, you know, he's gone. So I put him down there this morning. He still should be there. He's on the chain. He said, no, no, no. I called the RSPCA, Mm -hmm. told them what happened, and they told me they had a farm that he could go to. So Ben's gone to the farm. Right. I was absolutely gutted, Mm. really, really, really disappointed. It actually put a bit of a rift between myself and mum for many, many years. Mm. At this stage I was 15, so I was probably a pretty vulnerable age anyway. So do you think he actually went to the farm or no. did he went to the... That was just the story of the, the day. The story of the euthanasia yeah. The euthanasia story. Try and make it easy. Mm. In hindsight, just by myself, he was a lot of dog too. Yep. I managed, but he still had fights. He mm. still escaped. Yep. In this day and age, it'd be a very different story. I guess this day and age, considering that you're in local laws, as you know, you're the person that they generally see firsthand over some of these matters. Mm. This is where it can start escalating and start to becoming a problem. As you mentioned before, Greg, you're here to paint a better picture of what local laws and council rangers actually do because you can be painted as the villain in these situations, like you can be the worst person to turn up and it fills people with fear and dread. And I guess from my perspective of many, many years of integrating with local laws, council rangers, animal management officers, whatever they're called in each state, some of them are exceptionally good people. And some of them are not. And it really boils down to their attitude and the way they treat people. To counter that as well, what I have said when I was talking at the conference is the council rangers are also dealing with some of the worst common denominators as well. They're dealing with people that continually offend, have dogs that are always at large, even though they give them chance after chance after chance. Like I said, many of the people that I know who are exceptional men and women out there on the job just get sick of dealing with these people. And you can have uh, what Jay Jack calls, Jay Jack is a, a colleague, a friend of mine who is an exceptional dog trainer in the United States. And him and Chad Macken, another exceptional dog trainer, came up with this concept called the layered stress model. The layered stress model predominantly is something that all of us have this threshold where we can tolerate a lot of pressure and stress in our life. And if it stays under threshold, you probably won't see it. So it could be something that happens at work, then it could be something that happens on the drive home, and then if you get home and your partner says something to you and it takes you just above the level of threshold, you react and you respond then. A lot of people who work in local laws, even in in law enforcement, is they can have a day where they're just dealing with awful people in all sorts of calibres, and then they might deal with somebody when they're just close to threshold and that person might say one thing, and they can see the worst variant of the animal management officer, local laws, law enforcement, council ranger, whoever they are, and they think, oh, this is a bad guy or a bad woman or whoever it is. But sometimes they just don't know the accumulative stress that you actually have to deal with on the job. And I've had the good fortune to sit down with many people who I know are good people, you know, who really want the best for the community and really strive to do the right thing by people who try and educate, who try and communicate, who give people multiple chances. Again, they tell me these stories and you just think no reasonable person would tolerate that without some lashback, trying to say to them, okay, listen, mate, I've told you three or four times now, this is the fourth time I've had to come back. 
This is the fourth time this dog has been at large. This is the fourth time that this dog has pursued someone down the road. This is the fourth time that somebody's had to run away or there's been a close encounter or the dog has bitten them or something like that. And that's people being unreasonable. The other thing, and I don't want to monopolize this too much further, but the other thing that I often see is those people don't see themselves as the villain. They see themselves as the victim. And that's the bigger problem for people is they don't realize that they're the problem, they're the one that's causing this to happen, they're the common denominator. Often people in that remove the animal, they're the same type of people. They have problems with their relationships, they have problems with their friendships, they have problems at work and they just don't see themselves as being the villain. They see themselves the victim. They see it that everybody else is the one that's causing them the problem. And that's the issue that you have to deal with in these circumstances. And you shake your head and you think, man, how many times do I have to tell you before something has to be done? And then when something does happen, they scream and they scream blue murder. They literally light you up. They want to tell everybody on social media that you're the villain. You're the one that done the wrong thing. And their friends being good people, they want to come in and support a friend, but they don't know all the catalysts leading up to it. They don't understand how many chances they were given, how many opportunities they were given, how many times they had to be spoken to, how many times they have their dog seized, all of these sort of things. They just don't know the backlash. So they immediately jump to their friend's defense, but they don't realize that their friend is the common denominator. Their friend or their family member or that person is the one that's causing the grief. They're the one that keeps focusing the wrong light back on them. Absolutely. Despite popular belief, Rangers, local lords, uh, dog catchers. I don't even mind being called a dog catcher. It's, well, it's not a problem. Sometimes it's what you have to do. You have to catch hey, do- dogs that are, that are being a problem in the in the local community. And look, I've worked in three different states now, and it depends on which state you work. Yes. Usually determine what you're called. But even in New South Wales, Rangers is the predominant name. Yep. But there's enforcement officers, there's education officers, there's all sorts of different paths. AMO. AMOs, yeah, animal management officer. That's what they're called in Tasmania. And I think that's probably the the best – Descriptor. Descriptor, yeah, because mm. we don't – it's better than animal control because we don't just control. Our job is to manage. Yep. Similar to the good people that work for RSPCA or mm. Animal Welfare League or those sort of organisations, they're animal welfare officers because yeah. they look after the welfare. But, yeah, I'm a, a management officer. But in New South Wales, everyone knows a ranger. So, you know, as I said, despite popular opinion, we're human as well. Yes. And it, yeah. The stresses that we have at, at home and things like that. But I think also a good ranger will appreciate and understand that the person you're going to speak to may not be exactly the same, but they also have pressures on them as well. Yeah. As well as the dog. The dogs that we go to see quite often can be living in a very ordinary environment. Mm. Sometimes it's from lower socioeconomic areas. They're not cared for as well as they should be. They're certainly not stimulated or exercised as well as they should be. Yep. And people see it as their right to own a dog, but they don't go the extra mile to properly contain it. And that's unfortunately when we have any any interaction with them is usually when their dog's done mm. the wrong thing. Geez, that's a really good point, mate. And I think it's something that people don't often think about is that people squawk about the right to own an animal, but – that comes with an enormous responsibility because I think given the right to own an animal means that you also have 
enormous obligations to see the welfare of that animal through. Absolutely. I mean, God, there's so many dogs that have lived a disposable life just because it didn't suit the need anymore because it was wrecking the flower bed, because the kids didn't want to pick up its poo or take its food out in the morning. There has been a plethora of terrible and very ordinary reasons that I know of as a dog trainer and somebody involved in animal behaviour, especially canine behaviour, that people have rang me up. And, you know, there's a lot of people over the years that have rang me up and tried to get me to sort out their problem for them. And as I said, no, this is something that you're obligated to resolve. And really your obligation should be to stand by the dog. And I know there's some people who've had terrible situations of physical harm and abuse to them by partners and parents and all sorts of things where they they really can't help it. They've got to flee. And there are situations like that which are genuine. They're absolutely genuine. I've sat with people on multiple occasions and those people I will help. I will stretch my neck out for them. But people who are just being a little selfish, a little lazy, they won't even try and rehome the dog themselves. They're trying to palm it on to somebody to say, oh, can you sort my problem out for me? One of the most popular things they do is ring and say, oh, I've got this dog. It's just wandered in. Yes. Within seconds, because the first thing we do is scan the dog. Yep. We read the microchip. This dog has just wandered in, yet the microchip tells me it lives here. Yep. What's going on? Or even the same surname or, or things like that. Different councils work differently. I'm in the Hunter Valley, a council in the Hunter Valley, yep. and we have a contractor that does all our pound work, mm-hmm. looks after the dogs, and and they are experts at tracking down the owners of dogs. It, mm. it really, really impresses me how, how good they are. And the majority of oh, – sorry, not the majority, but the number of dogs that are actually owned by the person that's saying that they found it roaming and stuff like that is really alarming. Mm. And that's probably a reflection of times being tough. It's probably a number of things – why that is happening and it's quite sad Mm. that it is happening. I think there's a lot of pressure on welfare agencies as well to try and deal with the the influx of of all these animals. People are blaming COVID and things like that. I don't know about that. I think something more needs to be done. I don't know if having more spaces for them is, is the answer. I think education needs to be vastly improved. And that needs to start at a, at a school level mm. to, to make people realise that just because they have a wife and maybe kids, they don't have to have a dog unless you're ready, prepared and have the means to properly care for it. Don't get a dog. Yeah. There's I'm, a lot of other pets that they, they can look at. I entirely agree. We've sort of had a little bit of a history about you growing up. We've chatted a little bit in between about the sort of people who cause themselves a bit of a mischief. I just wanted to step back again because we're sort of on a trajectory of your story and I sort of jumped in with some other information, but I'd like to get back to where you got into actual working in as a council ranger. Yeah, sure. Tell us a little bit about that and the history of what you did and how you came to be where you are today. Soon as I turned 18, yep. I went out and bought a German Shepherd. Yep. Just out of respect for Timmy. Yes. And Maverick, his name was? Maverick. Was that dedicated from Top Gun? Oh, yeah. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. And Maverick was a sable German Shepherd. He was from, apparently from show lines. Yep. I adored him. Mm. Absolutely loved him. Was he a good dog? I don't know. At the age of about three, I also had a Maltese who escaped next door and was towed up by their cattle dog. Mm -hmm. I ran over to try and save it and sent Maverick over the fence and Maverick went over and towed up the cattle dog. So everything that you tell other people not to do now, you did when you were a youth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sounds all right. Sounds like everybody who was a youth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The owner of the cattle dog came out, saw my Maltese, who was 
fairly badly injured mm-hmm. and actually tripped over and landed on her and when she was trying to, to pick it up and grabbed it. Mav saw the Maltese scream and thought, oh, well, somebody else is hurting it. Dad said it was okay to, to towel up this cattle dog. I might have a piece of her. And this lady, she was a, a fairly large lady. He went over and grabbed her on the shoulder and picked her up and shook her around like a rag doll. Mm. He did a fair bit of damage to her shoulder. Yep. Called him off, went back. Within a week, the police were knocking at my door. Mm-hmm. And within a month, I had a summons to go to court. I was 18 and there's no way in the world anyone was going to take my dog from me. Yep. I got pretty desperate. The police were seeking a destruction order. Yep. And so I, I went into a, into a bit of a panic. Picked up the phone book and within a kilometre was a dog training company, not very far from here actually. Oh, this um, was in New South? Yep. Yeah. It was just I was living at uh, Box Hill. Right. Yep. So I know where Box Hill is, yep. Just near there, there was a, a dog trainer. So I went down there, told them what had happened and they said, yeah, we can fix him up. You need to put him in here for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I did that and I went back and I got a different dog and I was blown away. At that stage, I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I was getting $93 a week on the doll. Yep. I was giving 50 of that to the dog trainer mm-hmm. to give me an hour private lesson every week Yep. just to keep Mav trained up. Mm-hmm. He offered to come to court with me and, and all sorts of things. I ended up going to court. I had a friend who got me a solicitor who appeared on my behalf for free because of the work that had been done with Mav, because of the, the reference as such he got, he got. Yep. I got off with a warning. I had to pay a fine, a couple of hundred dollar fine and, and things like that, but I got off with a warning yep. and I was, it would be very different nowadays. Absolutely, absolutely. But I kept up with the lessons because I just enjoyed it. The guys that were the trainers were ex-RAF dog handlers. They were right. actually still in the RAF when they were doing it yep. and they had a security company. Mm. So I would go down for my private lesson and then say, oh, look, I've not got anything else to do today. Can I hang around? So I'd hang around and I'd clean some kennels and move some dogs and things like that. In the end, they said, look, go and get your security licence. We'll give you a job. We've seen how you work. You've got good ethics and, and things like that. So in those days, it was a, a weekend course mm-hmm. to get your security licence. Yep. I came back. They gave me a gun to strap on my hip and <laughs> said, here's a dog. Yep. So I got quite a legal ex-RAF dog. Mm-hmm. In those days, if you left, you had to euthanize your dog. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they gave me this dog, plonked me on a site for 14 hours. It was actually the day after my 21st birthday party. Yep. And I was not feeling very well. 14 hours on the on this site with this dog who didn't like cuddles, I found out the hard way. It wasn't <laughs> an overly friendly dog, but he was, he was obedient. And I did that for a couple of years working with them. And it just gave me a real taste of what it was like working with dogs because I was so interested. They had some contracts overseas with Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Solomon Islands, and, and they were providing dogs for them. Mm. Yeah, so I used I to help- do that myself. Yeah, I, I believe you used to do it with Boyd. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yep. So I, used to, I helped prepare the dogs for that. Mm-hmm. As well as I, I was working in the kennels, I, I'd, I'd take on anything and everything I, I could learn about dogs. Yep. And it was a really good lesson, really good experience handling these dogs who I think back now, the majority of them didn't have good temperaments. They were just very seasoned to what they were doing. So we had contracts with uh, State Rail. Mm -hmm. So these dogs would go to either Blacktown or Mount Druitt train station overnight. The guards would walk around with them and get rid of any any nonsense that was going on, then yep. bring them back. So we'd have to take, you know, eight to 16 dogs and put them back in their, their kennels each morning, yep. feed them, clean them and, and things like that. And I just got a really good taste of it. I kept up that interest. I moved around to a few different security companies mm-hmm. and then I thought, 
I'd like to learn a bit more about this. And the person who was, I'd probably say is my first mentor there, he put me on to William Keeler's book. Oh, yeah. The, yep. the guard dog training yes, book. Yep. And even before that, I was, I used to have a, a, a dog breed book that I pretty much knew cover to cover. I, like, page 156 was the German Shepherds, mm-hmm. 172 was Rock Wheelers. Yep. I, I could pretty much tell you the page number and, and what the breed was. And I was just fascinated with that. I decided I'd learn a bit more and I ended up buying any and every dog book I could on funds permitted, but the, I could just on training. The Keeler book was probably a rite of passage book back in the day. It was one that most people that I knew that were getting involved in sort of advanced techniques in training and any type of law enforcement training. William Keeler's book was, or William Kohler, whatever you want to call him. Yeah, um, Keeler Kohler, they call him both. But uh, those books of his were one that you had to have in your library around that 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Sort I've, of time frame. I've still got it. Yep. Yeah, I've yeah. got my. I've got a copy in my shelf. Yeah. But yeah. there's a few other people like Lou Burke. He, mm-hmm. he was more trick training. Yep. There's a lot of different people, all mm. from the states, pretty much. There's yes. a few crept in from the UK. Yep. John Fisher, mm-hmm. Roger Mugford, people mm-hmm. like that. And I was predominantly, I'd like to say, a good compulsion trainer. Hey, tell me. I was pretty hard. You got to be honest here. Did you ever used to watch Barbara Woodhouse in the mornings? No, I don't remember her oh, ever being on. Greg. I know who you're talking about though. <laughs> I can't go that high with my voice. She was this little old English lady and she used to have a bunch of dogs. And this was way back when, I, even when I was a kid. So it's a long time ago. But she's oh, not so long ago. No, no, no. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but she'd come out there and she'd wookies yeah. and she'd be off with the dogs. And she was quite a, a strict lady, you know, like she didn't put up with any shit from the dogs. But she also had this lovely, kind way with them as well. And yeah. I was, I used to laugh at the time. And, you know, at school, we'd always mock her, but I watched every show. Yeah. I was always interested in what she was doing with dogs. And mum said she'd come home and watch me as a little kid watching Barbara Woodhouse. And I'd pretend that I wasn't watching it because uh, it was a point of mockery at school, but I, I loved watching her train the dogs. I was always fascinated with how she got to do these little behavioural things with the dogs. So, oh, I can remember. Mm. I used to watch Totally Wild. Yep. Just in case they had a section on dog training. Absolutely. Katrina mm-hmm. Warren used to do it. Yep. Anything and everything like that, I would. I was like a sponge. Yep. I would just absorb anything and everything. Absolutely. So eventually I decided I contacted the local boarding kennel yep. and said, hey, how about I'll be your dog trainer? So they had an old tennis court that I, I cleared out mm-hmm. and I used to train. They ran a simple board and train program for a couple of weeks and I'd go in and just teach the dogs the basics. I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> of course, I look back now and realise I was very, very ordinary. I could get a dog to sit, stay and all those sort of things, but there was just so much more that I know now that I, that I needed to know. And I was, it was all based on compulsion. Now I'm I'm certainly not a, a force free trainer. I don't even consider myself a trainer now. I've not not had the opportunities to to keep up with it. But my preferred method is certainly a, with a, a balanced approach. And having worked with some working dogs, but even looking at the dogs that I see out in the street, who whilst they've got different temperaments than a working dog, yep. they can be fairly bloody dangerous. Yes, and I've I've seen training results that using balanced methods. I've seen the difference it makes. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I agree with you entirely. There's been an absolute elevation in 
the knowledge that people now have on training, especially in concepts of behavior. We know so much more now. It's not like the information wasn't around, but it was just so hard to access and it was very specific back at that point in time. So the only real reason that people would learn about Skinnerian conditioning through BF Skinner or Pavlovian conditioning or anything like that was you are either heavily invested in training, heavily, heavily invested in training, you're a scientist, or you were involved in psychology and behavior because that was part of the behavioral knowledge group. So that was usually withheld for that type of person. So there were smatterings of it about, and a few people such as the Learberg series and uh, many of the old VHS tapes that we used to get from the United States, they would talk about these concepts and we'd start learning about it. But I don't think it really became as apparent as it was for many people until Stephen Lindsay started to write his books, The Handbook of Applied Dog Training and Behaviour, and people really started to digest the information on there. That was the most intensive series of books that I've ever read on training and behaviour in my entire career, the Mm -hmm. start of it. Obviously, there's a lot of different books now. I mean, if you read things like Robert Topolsky's Behave, which is mainly resonating around human behavior, but it still talks about animal behavior. Very relevant because it talks about neurobiology and how and why we do certain things and how the brain impacts the body or the behavior of of a being. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. But back then, Lindsay's work was just incredible. It was hard to read because it's not so much a story. It's based on fact around science. And Stephen Lindsay is very much like many of these people in the science community of believing that fact doesn't care about your feelings. It's true. It's just what it is, you know, like it's what it's the truth of what science has found out about. Let me rephrase it. It's what science currently knows. When I was younger, when you were younger, what we knew about science back then was vastly different to what we know now. There's been more work. There's been more research. There's been more funding. So therefore we're learning a lot more about animal behavior in contrast to what our jobs are, which is, dog training mainly, or dog behavior and dealing with and caring for dogs. And as you say, it's so much more available now. Oh, mate. The internet is is fantastic. It's great, but it's also terrifying. Yes. The terrifying part of it is that the mobile phones in our pockets now, which are vastly, and I mean vastly superior to the souping computers of our age as children, like vastly superior to them, yet they're so misused. It's just amazing that people use it more to bully people on social media than they do to increase their knowledge and access to information. Like people ask me questions that I say, have you tried Googling it? And they say, no. And I said, oh, would you like me to Google it for you? The question that they ask me is probably something that I don't know. I don't mind being asked things that people may suspect that I have the answer to. But there's things that people have asked me before, which I I have no clue. It's new information. It's new science. And I often say to them, well, look, I'm not sure. And they look at me like, how is it that you don't know this? I'm not the oracle of all knowledge and I never will be. There is nobody on the planet that I know of that's like that either. So we're all researching and we're all learning things that are relevant and useful to our field and even sometimes things that we're interested in as well. But there's there's lots of things that I'll learn on a daily basis. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And it's because it's new science. Somebody has put the hard yards in to find out about it. And that's even people who are in the field 
giving information back. It's not just people in lab coats who are walking around with beakers and test tubes. These are people who are doing the legwork, observing, because science is built on observation, change through time and observing those changes. And you and me can do that as well. We're not scientists. I don't ever proclaim to be. But I can observe change, and we often do. You see things that have changed. In the 30-plus years you've been involved in dogs and animal management, I have as a dog trainer and somebody involved in behaviour, I see things change as well. I've observed many, many changes in my lifetime and many things with dogs as well. Yeah, many, many changes. Absolutely. I agree with you what you say there. You don't need to be a scientist to come up with new concepts and, and develop new techniques. You, you look at the likes of Bart and, and Jay and Larry Crone and all yep. those sort of people that the work that they've done, especially Bart. Yeah, that's Bart Bellin too. Bart Bellin, because sorry. There's many people who listen to this podcast who won't know who he is because okay. he's a dog trainer from Belgium involved in – he's a master of training in, in dog sport and a particular type of dog sport. He has his own – him and his wife, Michael, have their own registered dog training titles called Napopo. It's a outrageously fascinating system. Yeah. Bart is a genius in developing dogs and for dog sports. But, again, it's relevant to sort of people who want to pursue that type of training. That's right. But even yeah. someone like Jay Jack, who's another trainer from the States, yep. I've learned a lot watching his videos just on managing dogs. He specialises in, in a lot of the bull breeds. Yes, he does. And has helped a lot of rescue facilities across the world with managing many of the dogs that you and your colleagues are addressing. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. I remember in – I didn't see my first Staffordshire Bull Terrier until it was about 1996, 1997. Yep. Growing up, the Staffies of my time were Bull Terriers. Yep. They were everywhere. Mm. They yes, were, that's right. Yeah, the, the long-nosed Bull Terriers. The, yeah. And they were usually white. Yes. Yep. Yeah, sometimes with patches. Almost, yeah, almost like an albino. They had little pink noses little pink areas around their eyes, but that was the that was the scary breed of our year. It's funny you bring that up. I have to mention this because I remember at school when those dogs were around, my mate Robert, who was a schoolmate of mine, he used to tell me that those dogs, they had locked jaw and they couldn't let go of you once they bit you. Yep. And that was the common belief around there. Like they had this skeletal structure that when they locked hold of you, it was like a piston in their jaw that locked into place and they couldn't let go. As I found out and as we grew to understand the biology and the anatomy of dogs, that's physically impossible. Exactly. It's just about solid jaw strength and when dogs hold, they just have this capability. It's like somebody giving you a firm handshake and squeezing your hand. Some people are very, very muscular and very strong and they have very big forearms and huge hands and they were able to really crush and hurt your hands. And some dogs are like that with their mouth Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And mm. it's the tenacity that they've got. Yes, the tenacity. Yeah. 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 That's, it's nothing to do with lockjaw. But no, nothing at all. It's I, physically, I think that's it's a, rubbish. a media. It's a hype. It's a buzzword. It was around that time. Lockjaw was the way that they described those dogs that they would lock onto you and couldn't let go, but it's fictitious. Yes. Mm. But- so many people still believe still it. Still believe it. We come across it very regularly. Yes. I've seen it myself. I've seen dogs involved in fights. They bite and they hang on and you have to take extreme measures to make them let go and that usually involves cutting off their air supply mm. just for a short period of time. Yep. 
all the heating in the world is not going to do a thing. Well, the problem with that too is sometimes it can exacerbate the issue exactly. and make the dog bite even harder and more excessively or even start shaking or rolling or yep. doing something terrible. So I agree with you. You know, like there are, uh, we're talking about extreme measures, of course, and nobody wants to think of hurting a dog and neither do we. Like what but we it's also all, extreme situations. It's extreme situations. If you don't do it, yep. there's an animal going to die. Yep, or a person. Or a person, exactly. Yep. 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 Sometimes you have to do it. Short-term discomfort, yeah, to help. Totally for sure. Agree. I think that's a another role, and it, it, more and more, anyone doing law enforcement education is just so important. Yeah, we do a little bit in the schools, mm-hmm. not as much as I, I think every school kid should get it every year or two, and not just from us, not just from the management side of things, but they can also learn so much about welfare. I absolutely agree. I think all kids should learn about. One of the things I do think they should be learning about it at school is how to behave and respond around dogs. Absolutely. The disappointing thing, and I'm not going to whinge about this too much, but the disappointing thing I see is there's too many entitled kids in the world, especially these days, and they're not learning things that they should be. They're less rural than what they ever used to be. So parents used to be stricter on their children, teach them how to behave better around animals, and that's dissipating at a large rate these days. They're not teaching children how to do this. And it would be great if they had good instruction on how to conduct themselves, how to behave, what to do in an emergency situation, who to go to for help and advice if any of these matters are raising, like there's a rogue dog in the neighbourhood and they're worried and they feel unsafe. Like who do they speak to? What do they do about it? Mm. That's where you can go to your local council. Mm. We do that quite a lot. It's also up to the schools. They yeah. need to, to invite us in. Yes, we, I agree. We will ask to come in, but that's only going to go so far. Depending on your council area. Yep. Your limited resources. Well, that's the problem is a lot of them are, are government underfunded. Some of the local laws, people that I speak to as well, they're not as funded as what they need to be. And no, so are certainly the, not. And so are the schools. They're underfunded to be able to invite people in. But I think that you'd probably find that this would be a volunteer program. Absolutely. We yeah. never – oh, look, if I had to, I'd happily do it for nothing. Great. I'd take – time off work to go and do it because I think it's it's so vitally important yeah. to teach. And we're teaching messages that their parents probably wouldn't teach them. Well, they like, don't know. They don't know. No, that's right. I think our, unless you were interested in animals, our generation, we have a better idea what you needed to do mm. and probably what you need to do around animals where that's missing a lot now. Yeah. It's all about people thinking, going back to saying people have, it's their right to be able to go up and pat any dog that they see. Yep. Whereas it's just not safe. But that's that part of entitlement that I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't want to be mean to people and just say it's just all about entitlement. Sometimes it's just complete lack of education. And this was my point before. This is the more thing that this, – this is further on to the point that worry me about having these and I'm pointing to a mobile phone is we've got these amazing supercomputers in our pocket. There's an abundance of information on there. And this has been a whinge that I've had on other podcasts before, whereas we've got this information, but the problem is there's a lot of misinformation as well. And there's a lot of opinion that's out there. So there's a lot of people saying, no, you should do it this way. And then there's a counter to that and even a further counter to that. So people sometimes just don't know what to look at because they're reading opinions rather than facts sometimes. And that's where they can get mixed up with these situations as well. So really what we need to do, and many of my colleagues and I have said these same sort of things, Pat and I have said it on the canine paradigm multiple times, is that there needs to be a common language built in the communities Mm. where when people are talking about things, there's a similar language that's been used rather than variations of that language. Because so many times when people are talking about these things, it's like Greek, Italian, 
Serbian, French, German, Lithuanian, having so many different variations of a language all in a small portion where people are, they've got their own language and nobody really knows what anyone is saying. There's Mm. no common denominator of, you know, this is what we agree to say when we're together or the common language that we use, which in many cases is English, but in dog training, it needs to be the same. There are so many variations of phrasing and word terminology. Terminology, yeah, yeah, exactly, that we use. And a big pro- part of the problem I see it is a lot of the source of a lot of people's education about things like this yep. is the media. Yep. And let's face it, the media would rather report on a dog with lockjaw or you know, a terrible incident with a couple of dogs attacking a, somebody or, you know, then you go to extremes and that tragic incident that happened at Cowra recently. Tell me about it. It's a fatality. Oh, no, I'm, I'm unaware of oh, it. There was a fatality only probably a month or so ago. Mm. A young boy and two dogs. Fortunately, they've not been described as pit bulls, which yep. more often than not they are. Yep. But, yeah, this this little uh, two-, three-year-old, he, mm. he lost his life. Just tragic. I've been involved in some very serious Dog attacks. Yep. I've been around where there's been people hospitalised for long periods of time. Mm. There's limbs taken. Yep. It's really tragic. It's senseless and tragic. Yep. A lot of the time it could be avoided. Mm. And, you know, if we can work on the education with getting a, a common language that we're using, but also some common facts about how you handle yourself around dogs. That's a good leading, Greg, because what I really wanted to talk about towards the conclusion of this podcast is you're – involved in animal management. Tell people out there how they can reduce having them impacted by somebody in your position, which unfortunately you're out on the road patrolling, you and your colleagues. How can people stop this from happening to themselves? It's a shame. We don't even do a lot of patrolling nowadays. We just do responding. Yep. We get a phone call, there's been an incident. We we go to that. One of the best things people can do is realise that not every dog wants a pet. Yep. Stop patting strange dogs. That's a great piece of advice right oh, there. Keep first your- thing we do mm. is to, to tell kids. Yep. The dog doesn't want a pat. Stop sticking your hand in the dog's face. Yep. Be it with open fingers or closed fist or anything like that. And we try and explain to them just how confronting that is. Not every dog. You're going to have your oodle dogs and so many different breeds that like cavaliers and, 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 and breeds like that that have been bred and designed to be really good with people and yep. tolerate things like that. And look, I'll even include some of the bull breeds in that. Some mm. of the bull breeds have got amazing tolerance. My history involved in training and behaviour, there's a plethora of dogs that absolutely love and would invite a pat. To further more on your point, something that's been echoed around for many years and is continue to do so now is ask the person that's involved. Yeah. If you see a dog off lead with a person, don't approach because number one, you can't determine the level of control they have over that dog. They may have exceptional control or they may have none at all. But anyway, if a situation unpacks in that moment, like you go over and the dog is respondent towards you in a negative way, meaning it's aggressive, that person is very, very limited on what they can actually do during that time. If the dog is off lead, they can't catch them. If the dog chooses to be evasive, they can't stop from what's going on. They can run around. They can repeat the attack. There's many, many things that go on. So just don't go over to dogs that are off lead. Move off and go about your business. Compounding that problem is people don't know how to read dog body language. Exactly. They may see a wagging tail 
and not realise that if the ears are back or if there are other factors in play, that doesn't mean the dog wants a pad. It doesn't no, that mean just it's means friendly. the dog's aroused. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's more part of the education as well. Yeah, absolutely but- agree. The other point that I want to make on that too is, again, further to your point, is if the dog, even if the dog is on lead, ask the owner of the dog if it's okay to approach. Have a look yourself. Like that's why I think what you said before, and I definitely validate your points, Greg, is if people are educated, if kids are educated, they can learn to look for the warning signs, the preemptive signs that a dog is not comfortable and not happy where it is. On the other side of the lead, what this is a message to the people who own those dogs, is don't assume that your dog is always friendly with everybody else. Don't assume that it's okay and the dog isn't it isn't um, staging itself to bite a child or bite another bystander that's coming by. One thing that I often do when I'm educating people is I stand with my back to them and I put my hand to the side of my face and I say, tell me what expression is on my face. And I say, well, I can't see. And I say, all right, I've just changed my expression. What about now? And they say, same, I can't see. And I said, well, how do you think a person holding a lead with a dog facing away from them, they can't see the face? And it's often the case that I build around the discussion is called identifying the face. So there's body language as well, which is crucial and it should be known, but sometimes the face just cannot be seen by the handler. Absolutely. So there is a lot of assumption made of how friendly or not this dog is because they can't see the face. Mm. Automatically there is an issue right there in front of us that we can't see what the dog looks like while it's sitting there with its teeth up and the dog is prepared to launch towards the person on the receiving end of it. So that could be avoided quite easily. Yeah. Mm. And don't think you have to pat every strange dog. Yeah, but yeah. also equally on the other end of the lead, don't be afraid to tell people, no, my dog doesn't like to be patted. Yep. Um, yeah, you're I, I agree. probably going to offend a lot of people doing that. Big deal. Better exactly. than going to court. Absolutely. Yep. You, you don't want me knocking on the door. No. And it happens. Yeah. And look, under legislation there are some defences yep. for, for incidents like that, but you're going to have to prove it to me. Yes. And not that we take a lot of notice of, of what the dog's behaviour is because we're not – the vast majority of, of rangers are not trained behavioralists or have a good knowledge of dog behaviour. Mm. Your talk at the workshop that we had recently was, in my opinion, probably the best talk we've had there on dog-related behaviour topics. Thanks, mate. I really um, appreciate that. Oh, st- really, really good. I really welcome the invitation to come and talk and it was only short. I only got to spend a short amount of time doing it, but it was great that I got to interact with the group. It was really lovely to see majority men, big burly guys in the room, and it was great to see how receptive they were and the questions they had. There wasn't a lot of questions during the presentation because, again, it was a short window, but as I was moving outside and we were having some refreshments, people were coming up and asking me questions and talking about dogs and, and even shaking my hand and saying thank you. It was informative. And that was really great for me to know that it resonated with what they wanted to hear. You gave us some information about drives and different types of aggression and things like that that is vital information for us to know mm. because we have to make some decisions that that – at times are really tough, are yep. very, very hard. I know I've made some decisions that have resulted in the death of a dog. Mm. Not directly because under New South Wales legislation we don't actually have that that authority without going to court yep. or without other things in place. But a, a first-off offence, a dog bites someone and the person gets a couple of stitches or, or stuff like that, depending on the council, but you are very lucky if you don't get away with a dangerous dog order. Yep. 
So let's talk about that, right? Mm. Somebody's dog has bitten somebody. A council ranger has turned up on the doorstep, which is what they call New South Wales, and they are literally reading them the right act about then. They're doing a well, probably doing a little bit of investigation. Is that fair to it's, say? Absolutely, it's all about investigation. Right. We'll investigate the same way that uh, a police officer will investigate. Yep. we are bound by the same yeah. rules, rules of evidence, and, yeah. and things like that. Uh, a good ranger will recognise that we're not judge and jury. Mm-hmm. Whilst we have to make a decision on what on what happened, it's partly based on opinion. We can get facts from vets and from witnesses and things like that, but we. Well, I certainly don't go in there with any any sort of animosity mm. towards the people or, or the dog for that. Quite often it, you can understand what happened. It may be wrong and in most circumstances the dog shouldn't have done it. Yep. And there are steps in place that we can take, put measures into place to make sure the dog doesn't again, mm. doesn't do it again. And that's when I go to, to, to incidents like this, more serious incidents, my main goal is to make sure the dog never does that again. Mm. So in New South Wales, there are really three, call them control measures, that we can put into place. The first one in the lower end of the scale is a nuisance dog. Right. And a nuisance dog is through a declaration process. So you get a letter saying, I intend to declare your dog a nuisance. Mm -hmm. You then have a period of time to appeal why you don't think it should be a nuisance. And then that appeal is either upheld or you get a nuisance order. Mm -hmm. And what does that involve? What happens if you Effectively, a nuisance order is a six-month good behaviour bond. Right. So we will write back to you and say, no, your dog isn't now declared a nuisance and we have to give the reason why it's been declared a nuisance and what behaviour the dog should not repeat. Mm -hmm. So a nuisance order would be relevant for a dog escaping and chasing Mm -hmm. somebody, which under legislation is, is still considered an attack. An attack means a number of different things, but mm. one of them is to chasing somebody. Yep. But obviously it's a lower end of the scale. There's no harm done. Let's face it, a postie's not worth his salt unless he's been chased by a dog. <laughs> so and we come across a lot of incidents like that. And nuisance order is effectively a, a shot over the bow yep. saying you need to step up and, and be careful. Yep. We also do other checks about registration. So every companion animal, being dogs and cats, need to be registered when they're over six months of age. We make sure they're microchipped. We have a look at conditions for the dog as well. We don't have any authority under the welfare legislation, mm-hmm. but we all know our local welfare officer, Mm -hmm. and if there are things that we're concerned about, we can refer them to there. Right. We also – sometimes it's an issue with behaviour, and whilst I can't say you need to go to Glen Cook Dog Trainer, we can say, listen, get some training just to to help them out. And we do that fairly often. So effectively, when this happens, you've blipped on the radar with local council now. Exactly. Right. And it stays on the dog's record. Permanently? Yes. That okay. there's been a nuisance order placed. Yep. And when I say the dog record, every animal, companion animal in New South Wales yep. is recorded on the companion animal register, which is all based on their microchip number. Is that state or is that national? It's state. Mm-hmm. It's the only state to my knowledge that is doing it. I yep. think other states would like to and are considering it. New South Wales have had it for 20 odd years now. It's great. Having worked in, in various, in Tasmania and Victoria. Yep. New South Wales having their, their own state register is really good. So is that transferred from state to state if the dog leaves the state? Yes, it can be. Right. Yes. You would have to register your microchip with another microchip company. Right. The problem with those companies, they don't always share their information. Mm. We did a count a couple of years ago 
and I think there are about 22 different companies and there are probably a hell of a lot more now. But you had to look up four or five different websites just to track down the owner of a dog. Mm. Whereas New South Wales, if you're not on the Companion Animal Register, you're not registered in New South Wales and we will need to, to put that right. Right, okay. So those incidents, as I said, they're very low-key, very minor incidents. The next step up we've got a, is a menacing dog order. Mm-hmm. Now a menacing dog is going to come – into effect if there's been a dog attack. So it could be a chase. It yep. could be involve an injury, but it's not going to be a serious injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody, more often than not, there might be a scratch or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we- A we'll, bruise. Yes. Yep. Yeah, a, a bruise. Sometimes it's for multiple rushes mm-hmm. and they may have had a nuisance order. Right. And if you're going to breach a nuisance order- a, there's financial penalties. Mm-hmm. We're also going to look at upping the order to a, a more stricter order. Now, to meet the requirements of a menacing dog order, there actually there's some similarities between a menacing dog and a dangerous dog. Mm-hmm. You have to wear a special collar mm-hmm. that is reflective yep. at night, coloured red and yellow, and that has to be on 24 hours a day. Yep. Whenever the animal, for a menacing dog, whenever the animal is off the property, it needs to be muzzled and on lead. It's never allowed off lead. You so can menacing as well. Menacing as well, right. yes. Okay. Whilst you can take it to a dog exercise area, yep. you can't take it off. Yep. And I think you're it's not a good idea to take a, a dog on lead into a, a dog exercise area. So is it's there got a, a muzzle on? So with the muzzle, is there a brand of, or a type of muzzle? Can they wear any type of muzzle, like a Baskerville muzzle, which is the heavily reinforced plastic style muzzle or does it have to be like a wire sort of muzzle? I can't remember the exact words, but it's it's words to the effect of that inhibits a dog from biting a person. Right. So any type of muzzle yes. so that you can, can restrict go to, the dog from making contact with its mouth on uh, on another animal or person. Yes. Okay. I know of a, a dog that was a dangerous dog Yep. that had, I think, I'm not sure it was a Baskerville or even one of the cheaper sort of Velcro type muzzles, mm-hmm. it bit a person, she got 37 stitches in her arm and it was with a muzzle on. Right. And it was a Neapolitan Mastiff or, or something, a, a big, so those, pretty nasty dog. Those are the type of muzzles that are just like nylon around the, the mouth of the dog? Is that it affects, the- yeah, it, it largely aims to close the dog's mouth. So the, the old a, style ones that the groomers usually put on dogs. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I, I understand. That, yep. that type of thing. So yep. it doesn't actually – the, the wording of the legislation is that it, it needs to inhibit the dog from – or it's similar to – it needs to inhibit the dog from biting a person. So general type of muzzle in those sort of situations, one that would be accepted by the council that enforce the law or enforce the program that the dog is under – would you call it a program? Not really a program. An order. An order. Yep. So from the council who enforce the order would be the potentially a basket-style muzzle that's enclosing the mouth, stopping it from getting any limb or finger in the mouth of the dog and the dog not being able to bite. That's it. Yep. I personally recommend Baskervilles. Yep. Baskervilles um, are generally pretty good. Yes. Mm. But if the person tells us the dog never leaves a property, mm-hmm. they don't have to have a muzzle. Okay. We like to see the muzzle when we do checks. Yep but it's not a requirement that they actually have it. How they get their dog to the vet is their problem Yep. because if they get caught without any of those control requirements being met, yep. it's a $1,760 fine. Right. Pretty steep fine. It is. And then potential for that order to be upgraded. Yep. In some instances, depending on the severity of, of an offence, we can then look at euthanizing right. the dog as well. Now, the other thing which you and I and my staff were talking about before is that if that dog needs to leave the property and come into boarding, 
which we do, they have to notify council that the dog is changing address. That's correct. The dog needs to be in an escape-proof area, which boarding kennels should have anyway. That's part of the deal with boarding kennels. But I think it needs to be even stricter for a dog that's been declared dangerous where it cannot even jump out or bash through the the gate or the fittings or anything like that. Like the dog needs to be contained. And then if the dog goes out into the yards to exercise, the muzzle must be worn. And needs to be held by hand. Right. And on lead. And collared. And the collar. The collar needs to stay. Yep. There needs to be signage. Yep. Warning the people that there's a dangerous dog there. Yep. The enclosure itself needs to be constructed so it prevents a child from having access. And that's both menacing and dangerous. Right. For a menacing dog, the yard needs to be constructed so so it prevents a child from having access. Yep. So- it's one of the more difficult situations to assess mm-hmm. and it, it changes from council to council, from even from ranger to ranger to, to a certain extent. Mm. If we were going to a property that has kids, mm-hmm. even though the kids live there, the dog knows the kids, the dog still has to be kept away from the kids so that the kids can't have access. So if they want to keep the dog in the backyard, yep. they're going to have to put deadlocks on the door so that a kid can't walk along and just open that door and, right. and enter the backyard, mm. as I said, regardless of whether it's their kid or not. So now let's escalate to we've talked about a menacing dog, which mm-hmm. in my mind sounds very much like a dangerous dog. What's yes. the difference? The difference in a dangerous dog is a, do- a dangerous dog must be kept in an enclosure mm-hmm. that's 10 square metres. Right. So a menacing dog is allowed access to the backyard, but there is – Provisions in place to stop children or public from accessing the dog. Most menacing dogs live in a separate yard. Yep. There's no size requirements for a menacing dog, mm-hmm. whereas there is for dangerous. Right. And all menacing and dangerous dogs also need to be dissexed. Right. Okay. Which causes a lot of people a lot of upset. Yep. Understandably, mm. I think. Especially if it's a pedigree dog and yep. it's been used for show or stud or something like that, that would alarm them. We have... In some instances, we've had to seize dogs that the owners refuse to to have them dissexed. Mm-hmm. It's really rough. I, yeah. It's not one of my favourite things. You often have to go with the police. Yep. There's often a lot of angry interaction uh, that, from the people and it upsets people. They'd be emotional. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be emotional. Yeah. And the whole point of having this discussion, the whole reason for bringing you in is not just because you're a good guy, is because I think what people need to know is you bring this on yourself. And it might not be deliberate. You might not have done it deliberately. So I know there's been cases where people have let their dogs out of the backyard, tradesmen, friends, family, whatever it might be, and the dog has got out of the backyard. Or sometimes the dog has just managed to escape the backyard. It's just bad fortune. A a tree comes down across the fence, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is the dog still has no social construct of how to behave itself when it gets out into general public. A lot of the time the dog's never left the yard. Right. And that's the thing is the dog then pursues, it chases, it catches, and it does harm or it it freaks somebody out and they fall over and hurt themselves. It follows its instincts. Well, in some instances. It follows its instincts, but it also does what it knows to do as well. And that generally doesn't constitute good training. No. Or good behaviour. Or good behaviour. So the thing is, alluding to the original point of having this conversation was there are many ways that you can prevent this from happening. And a lot of those are good and regular socialization programs when the dog is a young puppy. And even continuing through the majority of its life is that it's still exposed and it's taught how to deal and cope with a lot of varying stimuli in the environment and including up to children and other dogs and other animals cats and everything like that. So the dog has a large array of acceptance of 
many of these things happening and making sure that the dog is doing or is involved or enrolled in some form of training, that if the dog is at large instead of the dog believing. There's a clip that I put up regularly for everybody and I showed it at the council thing, the Fenton film clip. It's called The the film clip is called Jesus Christ in Richmond Park. Yeah. And long story, it's great. I'll show everyone. Everyone has a laugh but there's a lot of seriousness behind it as well. To talk about the clip, it's in a place called Richmond Park in the UK and a guy is filming a pack of deer or a herd of deer or whatever you want to call them. While he's observing these deer, he can hear this guy yelling, Fenton, Fenton, Fenton in the background and this squat little guy is running down a field chasing after looks like a little Kelpie cross or something like that, which is gathered up almost every deer in the park. So it's probably about 50, 60 head of deer and proceeds to run them across a busy road that's splitting the park in two and all the traffic have to stop. And everyone has a laugh when they see it because this guy is running down the field calling out for Fenton and yelling Jesus Christ at the top of his lungs and, you know, as I say to him, which is the funny part of it, is that he had to call his dog nine times and the dog didn't stop, not even turn around, didn't even acknowledge him, and Jesus didn't come down to help him. So <laughs> there's a bit of a giggle there, but the serious side of it is what if that dog drove that deer into your wife's car while she was coming home and your two kids were in the back seat? How would you feel about that guy then who had the right to walk his dog in the park but had no impulse control over his dog. I'd argue that he had his right to walk his dog off lead in the in the park. Right. If you can't control your dog, you don't let it off lead. Exactly right. But that's the belief that a lot of people have when they go to parks is they let the dog off. It's their right. It's their right to do it. The it's circle their, back? Yeah. The problem then is what about the lady's right with the two children to get safely from A to B in their vehicle and Absolutely. not have – 50 deer crossing the road because your dog chased them down the road. And this is what happened in this film clip. So it's called Jesus Christ in Richmond Park. You can watch the film clip yourself. Yes, it's a bit of a giggle watching it, but there is a very, very serious side of it. The other serious side of it is what if the dog caught one of those deer and mauled it and killed it, which was very likely. That's probably the intent of the dog in predatory mode. Yes. And a lot of times with a dog in prey, like a lot of people get hurt, injured, or even killed from a dog in prey. We discuss a lot of time a dog who's defensive and ultimately then aggressive, but the modality of a dog in that mindset is to bite you and try and drive you away. A prey dog doesn't think about that. A prey dog is actually in a very excited and aroused state, wants to catch you, and then God knows what it will do when it gets a hold of you. And this is why young children die from a lot of these type of dogs. A lot of the times a dog doesn't know what it's going to do when it catches. It doesn't. There's a scene in one of the Batman movies where the Joker says, I'm just like a dog who chases a car. I don't know what I'm going to do when I even catch it. That's the problem with the dog. It doesn't know. Sometimes it might just herd you up and round you, run around you barking, and sometimes it might leap on you like a lion and maul you. Hmm. You don't know, and neither does the owner of the dog because they're not in that situation. But that is a really good video, and I use it as a behavioural case study for people to look at after they're done laughing at it, to look at and say, my God, that is a terrifying thought, you know, because it actually is a terrifying thought to watch what could have unfolded in that moment. Absolutely. So Mm. many different things. Look, even to not quite as tragic as a person living their life, but the deer could have even just run into one of the cars. They've got a broken leg. Mm. You then have to deal with that. So it's really going to be a good outcome from something like that. Yes. But going more on what you were talking about with people needing to properly socialise their dog and train their dog and do all those sort of things, I go one step further and saying, you know, if you've got a dog that has some issues – 
that perhaps you can't resolve. Perhaps mm. you don't have the financial means to get a dog trainer in to, to be able to resolve them. You don't have the the knowledge, even though you can find all sorts of things on, on YouTube. Sometimes it's, it's not going to happen for you. It's not going to work for you. Exactly right. But that's where you need to take the steps to properly secure the dog in the yard. Mm. And if the dog gets out because the courier opens a gate, Make it so the courier can't open the gate. Yeah, good point. Same as the kids, you know, oh, the kids left the back door open. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I wouldn't be working as a ranger. Mm. As I said before, rangers are human as well and the majority of us have our own animals, dogs, and we work in the field because we have a level of affection, for want of a better word, Mm. for for these animals. And we've also got a job to do. When we go and, and take action against a dog that's inflicted serious injury on, on somebody else and we know it's going to that dog's going to end up in an enclosure, you can tell most of the time that, you know, that dog's never going to get out of there mm. or it, it only gets out when it, when it escapes and things like that. It's really, really hard and it takes its toll on rangers as well. Absolutely. So I really stress to people, just do the right thing. Yeah. Look after your after your dog. And if you can't do that, take steps to make sure that either somebody else can. Greg, that's a, another really salient point. And one that I will say, there's people that I've been involved in these situations where their initial conversation with the council ranger is, I can't afford training. My response to that when I talk to people is you can't afford not to. Absolutely. Because it's going to cost you triple, quadruple 10 times the amount, whatever that figure is, if you start getting in trouble, like the bills start stacking up, the court fees start stacking up if you want to choose to fight it or if you're taken to court and you have to defend yourself and hire a lawyer and all those sort of things. Like these things really start impacting you on a financial basis. To do and a proper dangerous dog enclosure, yep. you're looking at between six to $8,000. It needs to be a concrete slab. It needs to be drained. It needs yep. to be graded so it can drain away, so you've got to connect the drain somewhere, it can be very expensive. The fine for a dog attack, and as I mentioned earlier, a dog attack can include a dog just chasing somebody. Yep. It doesn't even have to touch somebody. Right. But the fine for that is $1,320. Starting at or? Yes, starting at. That's what a ranger can issue on the spot. Yep. We're going to take it to court, you're looking at the thousands. Yep. If you have a dangerous dog, who has already been involved in an incident to be declared dangerous, it offends again, the owner can be looking at jail. Mm. But not equally on that note, not only the owner, and this is a a warning for the people that board these type of dogs, Mm. there's also a separate offence for the person in charge of. So if we had an incident here, God forbid, at a boarding kennel, that a dog escaped and bit one of the staff or escaped and ran away or stuff like that. I'm looking for the last person that touched that kennel gate. Why wasn't it secure? Mm. And I will give that person the relevant fine. Yep. Or in some instances they could be responsible. If it's a dangerous dog, Mm. they could be responsible. Their actions could be resulting in the the death of the dog. Mm. And also go to jail. Yeah, well, that's, that's a, the other. Wow, yeah, that's a huge escalation. Yeah, so dangerous dog, second offence. Yep, that's one of the penalties. I've never known it to happen, but it's there. But it's there, and mm. you get wrong magistrate on the wrong day. Yep, who was you know even perhaps been involved in a similar incident. I know it happens with welfare cases. Yep. It's only a matter of time, I think. Well, don't be that person. Absolutely. Mm. Hey, Greg, I just want to thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about this, mate. It's fascinating. And, you know, we've talked for a little bit over an hour already and we could probably fill another hour with some of your experiences. So we might get you back at some stage to 
maybe talk a bit about of a case study and so forth. So I'd love to. Mate, I really appreciate it. I also appreciate you because I know that you're out there and you're one of the people in animal management as a ranger council officer making a difference. You're educating people. You're a very compassionate person and a passionate person about doing the right thing. And I know that people like yourself aren't out there to cause a mischief for people and to bring strife to their life. You're actually trying to improve community standards, stop people from getting harassed and injured by people's rogue animals. That's really fair to do. And I think that if you do get the opportunity that you do have a reasonable person from animal management turning up to your doorstep and they're trying to work with you, well, work back with them rather than give them heat and start talking to them aggressively and being difficult with them. Listen to the instructions that they're giving you because I've met and I've worked with animal management people in many different states and some of them have been the most fantastic people and the most fair people I've ever worked with on the planet and yet they'll come across people who immediately get their back up and immediately are rude, vicious and violent towards them And as Greg said, he's only human and so are many of these other men and women who are out in the field. They don't deserve that sort of contempt, especially when it's you and your pet that's at large and has caused the problem. Sometimes even just an apology will get this through. Like if if the other person who's been impacted, if you work with the council officers, apologize, take steps, get involved in training, many of these things can prevent harm from happening. Greg, thank you very much, mate. Loved having you on the show. And as I said, you're just a wealth of knowledge with these sort of things and a go-to guy for many of the things that we can do to prevent problems with our animals at large. So don't do it. Just don't do it. And then you won't have to hear from Greg other than for helping and educating the community. Come and say hello anytime. Yes. Greg Trednick, thank you very much for coming on the show. My honour. Thanks very much, Glenn. Greg also mentioned before about training and behaviour. That's our sponsors of the show. We've got PetResortsAustralia.com where you can go and board your animal safely. And we've also got Canine Evolution. That's the word canine evolution, one word, .com.au where you can go along and train your dog and prevent any of these things from ever happening and stop people like Greg from knocking on your door when he really doesn't want to. So thank you once again, mate, and thank you for listening to the show. We really appreciate it and look forward to hearing from you or educating you on our next episode. Bye for now. 